Uh, this morning, I invite you to turn to James chapter 3. As you're turning there, just uh, let you know, I think Monique, we prayed for her a couple weeks ago. I don't know why my coffee cup's up here. And uh, she's heading back, actually, stateside here. Monique Hurley is one of, uh, on staff here, works with our children's ministry. And she's over in Germany with Summer Hartzler. And so she's flying home, I think, today or in the air right now as we speak. But uh, keep her in, in your mind. Uh, some fun things, just so you guys know. Um, we're just kind of experiencing some crazy growth here over the last uh, five or six weeks. And um, we've um, pushed past 500, uh, we've pushed past 600, and we're in 700 territory on a Sunday morning. Yeah, which is awesome. Um, but uh, one of the things that's happening is um, our classrooms over there, like the kids, is getting like packed out like there was a, I think a class of three or four year olds that had like 30, or 20, 22 kids or 24 kids and if we could have had a picture of the person leading that at that moment um, a picture is worth a thousand words um, and so I am we're just asking pray about this uh, pray for um, the, the gals running this for Beth Falkenberg for Monique and uh, just as they're trying to adjust to this growth it's answered prayer I mean, I don't know if you guys remember that. A couple years back, we actually prayed, Lord, we, we're making room for more, so bring more. And, and now we're like, okay, uh, uh, help, uh, Lord. Um, so it's really cool what God's doing. And uh, so many people inviting others and coming in, and uh, it's, it's just a cool thing. But I just want to let you guys know that. It's answered prayer. God's on the move. Kids are coming in. People are coming in and hopefully encountering Christ. And just wanted to let you guys know that. And if God lays it on your heart to possibly uh, jump in over there, that, I mean, it's got to be you, God, praying and working with Beth and Monique. But uh, I want to encourage you to seriously think about doing that. Um, it uh, definitely would help out uh, over there. And it's not um, a small thing to sit in front of a child and talk to them about Christ because often that is where somebody finds Christ, is in those mornings like that. And so there's a lot more going on. We don't call that child care over there. That's discipleship. And uh, we take it very seriously. So keep that in mind. Pray through that. Um, cool things what God's doing here. Uh, what, hopefully your Bibles are open to James chapter 3. Um, Several years ago, uh, I don't know if you ever heard of George Barna. He's a famous guy that does uh, all these uh, surveys and things. He's got his own company now called the Barna Group. And they did a survey on Christians. And um, they asked the question, what do you believe about Satan and demons? And 60% of Christians, or who, those who said they were Christians, came back and responded that they believed that Satan was just a symbol of evil. 60%. 30% of Christians believe that Satan exists and can actually influence, that he's an actual being and can influence us, and, or his demonic uh, kingdom can influence us. And 10% of Christians didn't know what to believe. And... Uh, this morning, I would imagine, given that survey, that there's quite a few of us that are probably not sure what we believe about Satan, or we're on that grid somewhere in the 60%, 30%, 10%. How's that for a scientific conclusion? I just realized that was about the dumbest thing I've said all morning long. Right. Yeah. 
You know, that's what Satan would want, though, is for us to not think that he really exists. Uh, we're part of a tradition that believes uh, in the er- inerrancy and infallibility of the word of God, um, sole rule for life and faith. And because of that, it binds us towards conclusions. It teaches us things that we can't just throw off. And in James, we encountered last week him starting to talk about hell, Satan, and demons. And, and we're going to take a week to kind of jump up and, and get a, maybe more of a bird's eye view of what exactly does that mean when he says these things. So in chapter 3, verses, verse 6, it says, The tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set up among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. Verse 8 says, no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. Verse 15, he's starting to talk about the conduct and bitter jealousy and selfish ambition that's in their hearts. And he says, this is not wisdom that comes down from above, but it is earthly, unspiritual, demonic wisdom. You go on and he says in chapter 4, verse uh, 4, he says, You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. A little less, you know, I I would say pointing us towards demonic, but there's this enemy sense. Verse 7, or verse 6, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. And says, do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil. You know what's interesting is James talks more about Satan and demons than he does the Holy Spirit in this short letter. It's a fascinating thought. He declares that our Thinking can be demonic. Our speech can be demonic. He states emphatically that Christians must resist Satan and he will flee. And we have to be careful here how we draw conclusions in this passage because in the same context, he's also talking about our desires which are sinful, evil. And it should clearly be said that our own sinful choices can really mess things up all by ourselves. And in this passage, it's not clear who or what is driving what. Is it sin or is it Satan? You could fall out either way, but they're mixed together. But when he starts to write, resist Satan and he will flee from you, he's, he's not being metaphorical in that context. He is being literal. And he's writing, here's what's interesting, he's writing to Christians. He's writing to the church. So it stands to reason that a Christian could choose not to, in fact, resist Satan, but actually embrace Satan and welcome Satan in. And actually, that's what was going on, and he's trying to tell them, no, resist. Don't welcome him in. Don't allow him to stay. And the implications of that is, is 
what do you do with that? If, if the church can a Christian, what? How does that all, you can welcome Satan in? So there's a lot of confusion on this. There's a lot of, uh, it, it can get amped up pretty quick. I, I want to talk, talk about some easier things first, and, and we'll just kind of work our way into this. First thing I want to hit on is there is a spiritual war we're in, and there is a literal enemy. It starts in Genesis when Eve and Adam are tempted by Satan. They eat the fruit. They choose to sin. Judgment comes, and God says to the serpent, Satan, you will be at war with humanity. That's the curse. It's God's judgment. Ezekiel 28, Isaiah 14, also part of the Old, what do you say, the Old Testament records Satan's fall and, and angels going with them, and that angel, you know, that contingent of angels that went with them are the demonic forces that are now referred to. Jesus said in Luke 10, he saw Satan fall from heaven. And, and in the New Testament, Jesus himself had to resist Satan when Satan came and tempted him. There was people that were possessed by demons. There were people that were influenced by demons, and you saw that coming in and out of Jesus' ministry. If you go on past Jesus' life, and that's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, those are the first four books of the New Testament that talk about Jesus' life, and then you go into the rest of the New Testament, over and over again, you see this repetition of a spiritual war. A famous passage up on the screen is Ephesians 6, where it says this, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Uh, real quick, that, that's not metaphorical. That's literal. The context that Paul was writing in, he was not trying to speak in hyperbole. He's saying, no, our fight is not against any person. We don't have enemies. The only enemy we have is a satanic enemy. Peter writes, the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking those whom he may devour. I've heard people say, you know, that Christ made Satan toothless or this lion toothless, and, and, and that's just, that's bad theology because Peter says, no, no, no. This lion still has teeth, and he will chew us up if we are not careful. There is a spiritual battle we're in. It's not fairy tale. It's not fanciful stuff. It's very real. Another idea that is somewhat easy to tackle is we, we have this concept and conversations about, okay, how does this interact? And often we talk about, you know, people being possessed by Satan or possessed by a demon. Let me just talk about what this word possessed means. Uh, possession, the Bible clearly teaches this idea that we are all possessed, spiritually owned. Every person in this world is spiritually owned. So anyone who is a Christ follower is possessed, owned by Christ. We were bought with a price. We were brought in 
through the blood of Christ into his family. We are owned by him. Anyone that is not owned by God, according to the Bible, is owned by Satan. That's possession. Romans 6, 1, 6 says, we belong to Christ. We're owned by Christ. Chapter 7 talks about it. Chapter 8 talks about it. 1 Corinthians 15 talks about it. 2 Corinthians 12, Galatians 3, Galatians 5, over and over and over and over and over again, we're owned by Christ. So what does that look like? If you would think of ourselves this is, Paul says, we're the temple. So this is a house, right? The foundation is Christ. He comes along. He owns the house. He owns us. His presence comes to dwell in us. That's what that means. Prior to the cross, we are owned, possessed by Satan. That's possession. No Christian can be owned, possessed by Satan. Scripture is very clear on that. It says it over and over and over again. The third idea or word, concept that is important to understand is that the Bible also has another word for the activity of the demonic realm. And you see it in the Gospels. It's this word demonization, demonized. And it means influenced or oppressed. It does not mean owned. There's no ownership implied. There's no ownership attached to it. It is simply about oppression and influence. And what happens, I, what I've seen in, in, in the church community in, in America for sure is there is a confusion over possession and demonization or influence or oppression. And the two are not the same, and the Bible treats them differently. Demonization is a spectrum. It, it's, it's degrees. And it can look simply something insignificant that's small, like a, a, a demon throwing a rock at our house and just hitting us, all the way to us inviting or giving permission for them, as we open the door through sin, to come and be a part of it. They don't own us. If you think about ownership, we're still owned by Christ, but because through sin patterns, we give them a right, a legal right to be there. So they're squatters. They take up space and they attack us, but that's influence. And it can be all the way from outside just coming at us to what we've done and allowed them to come in. They don't get to just waltz in. We let them in. And, and some would say, well, well, wait a minute. The Holy Spirit's there. How can that happen? You're, you're owned by God. There's an there's a important distinction to make. Because, you know, how can darkness and light be together? The problem is God is omnipresent. With that logic, God is omnipresent, and he's already in this world where evil is. He's already mixing it up. So logically, what we could conclude is what is 
totally incompatible ethically may still be in proximity spatially. That's a great line, isn't it? That's not mine. It's a pastor. So people say, well, how can, how can demons be with the Holy Spirit? How can that happen if, if it's in the, in the same house? Because it's incompatible, right? Darkness and light, incompatible ethically. No way that can happen. But that's not necessarily true when it comes to space, location. So they are incompatibly ethically, but we see God already in here and demons in the same place. Christ walked on earth. He's right next to, he's talking to demons. How could they be together? Well, they're not in, but there's still this inner relationship. It is possible. The Bible talks about this. There's a couple stories I want to talk about. One is about a woman. It's found in Luke chapter 13. Up on the screen, I think you'll see the, the passage, or maybe not. No, I'll read it to you. Uh, Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, and behold, there was a woman who had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over, so she's bent over, could not fully straighten up. And when Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you're freed from your disability. And he laid hands on her. And immediately she was made straight and she glorified God. And it goes on to say that the ruler of the, the synagogue there is like, What are you doing? Why did you come here to get healed on the Sabbath? You could do that in the other six days. Go and do it then. Why are you here? And Jesus got really ticked off. And he says, Are you kidding me? You'll go feed your ox. You'll go feed and water your donkey. But you won't let a daughter of Abraham be healed? And it says the people were like, yes. And the leaders were all humiliated. Now, it's important to note, when you look at verse 16 of that chapter, Jesus is the one who calls her a daughter of Abraham under the old covenant. Jesus is the one saying, this is a woman of faith, not somebody else. And I think Jesus would know who has faith and who doesn't have faith. And he's saying, this is a woman of faith who has been demonized, influenced by Satan for 18 years. She's, coming, she's basically coming to the synagogue. She's coming to church for 18 years, and not one person in the place saw it for what it was. 18 years. Jesus comes in and goes, what in the world? Come over here. Let's talk. You want to get freed? She's like, yeah. He says, let me set you free. That's the word. So he frees her. He frees her from demonic influence. That's a pretty extreme demonic influence, I would imagine. That, that ranks up there if you talk about degrees. She's healed. It's a, an example, in Jesus' word, of a person of faith that's not possessed but demonized influence and oppressed. Peter is another example of demonization influence. There's this moment where Jesus says, Peter, who do you think I am? Or he asks all the disciples, and Peter says, oh, I know who you are. You're Jesus the Messiah. You're the promised one and all this. And, God. and Jesus says, that is awesome. There's no way you know that except the Father told you that. And I'm going to make you the rock on which I build my church. Your name is Peter, right? And I'm going to build this church on it. And Jesus says, and, and here, actually, uh, pretty soon here, I'm going to go die. And then Peter goes, no way, you're not going to die. No way, we're going to let this happen. And what does Jesus say? Satan, get behind me. Wah, wah, wah. In one moment, 
Jesus is saying, your faith is such that I will build my entire church on it. And in the next moment, Jesus is looking Peter right in the eyes and he's saying, Satan, get behind me. Peter is this man of faith, part of the old covenant. In one moment, he's saying this. In another moment, he is influenced by Satan. Jesus rebukes not Peter, but Satan. He wasn't possessed by Satan. He was oppressed. And, and here's where some would say that was all before Christ died in his new covenant. And that's true, but Paul goes through great lengths in Romans chapter 1, Romans chapter 4, Romans chapter 9. Like, not just a short verse, the whole chapter these chapters, especially 4 and 9, Paul is saying faith is faith, is faith. Abraham is a father of faith. Abraham was justified faith, and it is his faith that is passed down. It is not because you're a natural descendant. It's because you're a spiritual descendant that you have the promises of God and are owned by God. Faith is faith is faith. Ownership is ownership is ownership. And what we can conclude with certainty is that people of faith, that Jesus had faith, authentic faith were still demonized. We can also conclude, as you look through the Matthew, Mark, Luke, Jesus' ministries, especially in those three books, Jesus empowers the disciples and teaches them how to resist Satan and actually cast out demons. And one of the last things he says in Mark chapter 16 is, go and you as part of one of the things you will do is cast out demons. We also can conclude that Scripture never ever says Satan and his kingdom have stopped attacking Christians. You cannot find that anywhere in the Bible. It's nowhere in there. What you do find over and over again is Satan is attacking Christians. Look out, Satan will attack you. Look out, Satan will attack you. And it's not talking about those who don't follow Christ. It's talking about Christians. And it, and it can't be just some like, Oh, whatever that is. They're saying, look, he will tear you up. Paul writes, he says, don't put someone who is young in their faith in a position of leadership because they could fall into Satan's trap. There's a trap. It's real. Now this may all, like, some of you may be sitting there like, ooh, this is way more than I thought I'd be getting on a Sunday morning. Um, let me, let me just say uh, something else that might help a little bit. Um, Freshwater, we're not out on our own on this. We're part of the Christian Missionary Alliance. It's a denomination. And we fall under that umbrella of authority and doctrine. And this is something the Christian Missionary Alliance has believed and taught all along since it's established. We're not, as a denomination, all alone either. There are uh, the flagship, I would say the flagship schools of theology, conservative Christian theology is Dallas Theological Seminary, Moody Bible Institute. Dallas Seminary has had a professor there teaching this. He's not there anymore. He's back in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, but he taught this. And they had him on staff, full tenured professor. Actually, when he retired, they made him a professor emeritus. Moody Bible Institute 
the chairman of the theology department. Every year when I was there, and even after I was there, that's what he taught was a class on angels and demons. And this is what he taught. Those are conservative schools. And this is what Fred Dickinson, that professor at Moody Bible Institute, um, this is his, a quote from him that explains this. He says, clinical evidence abounds that a Christian can be demon-controlled as a carryover from pre-conversion days or can fall under Satan's power after conversion and become progressively demonized. Interesting word, demonized, not possessed, demonized. Even seriously, if such a person blatantly lives in scandalous sin, subscribes to and embraces heresy, engages in occultism, and gives himself or herself to rebellion and lawlessness against God's word and will, he or she may expect a demon invasion of his or her life. We're not out on an extreme position here. This is a very mainstream conservative understanding of our battle we're in and the impact it can have. And how does that work? How is that possible? Well, Ephesians 4.29, it's a famous passage. It says, don't let the sun go down on your anger lest you give Satan, it depends on what version some of us may have memorized, foothold, lest you give Satan an opportunity. The, the word literally is to give ground to Satan. And, and the premise, the idea of it, it comes in a whole list of sin. The idea of this is when we leave sin unchecked, we open the door, we give ground, we give a room in the house for influence and the presence of Satan or his demon. I doubt it's Satan himself because I don't know whether we rate that high. He's not omnipresent. He only can be one place at one time. So I, I doubt it's Satan, but it's a demon. Satan, say his name, and it, it includes the demonic, uh, I would say the demonic kingdom. Keep in mind that in Ephesians, Paul's writing this to Christians about the spiritual war and about giving Satan ground. James is, is written to Christians. Christians can have demonic thinking, demonic behavior. And it makes sense then when James says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. It, it isn't figurative, it's literal. Stuff is real. The primary way, as we read through Scripture, that Satan has ground in our life is through our sin. How does that happen? I mean, how do they get in? It is really through our sin. You see that over and over and over again. It can come through gener generational sin, and you see that especially modeled in the Old Testament, passed down to the third and fourth generations. And each generation is not guilty for the previous sin, but each generation is exposed and vulnerable until they reject that pattern of sin handed down. The gateway is open, the door is open, and it just keeps going on and on. They can get in through curses. There was a king who wanted one of the prophets of God, Balaam, to curse Israel. Now, we hear about witch doctors, and we, we believe that stuff, if it can happen over there, you know, have J.D. come back and talk about all these stories about demons, but, you know, it still happens here. That stuff's real.
And they attack our bodies, they attack our minds, they attack our emotions, they attack us, spirit. So resist the devil, what, what does that mean? Several thoughts. I think a great place to start is just looking at what Jesus did. Satan came and tempted Jesus, and Jesus simply quoted Scripture back. And the best way to resist Satan is to put this in your heart. Know the Word of God. Memorize it. Because that's what Jesus said. Satan's like, hey, why don't you go turn this into bread? And Jesus is like, eh, no, that's not how it works. The Bible says, my word says, the living word says, we'll not eat. We don't live by bread alone, by the word of God. All these temptations, Jesus kept coming back with scripture. And that's what we do when we're tempted. We say, hey, wait a minute. No, no, that, that's not what a man of God does. It's not what a woman of God does. I know what scripture says. And so we come back with Scripture. We hide it in our heart. They're still alive. They're still active. What Paul says, I think, is also a great thing. First of all, Scripture. Second of all, Paul says, don't let the sun go down on your anger. And I think that's for any sin. Keep your confessions quick. Your, short, your, your, your sin list should be short. Keep it short. We let stuff hang around and not deal with it and pretend it's not there. It starts to build and it starts to give permission for oppression because we won't deal with it. Keep the sin accounts short. Confess sin. Receive Christ's forgiveness. That, that breaks so much. I mean, that's what allows most of this to happen. And when we confess and receive forgiveness, it breaks the right for them to be there. The blood of Christ covers us. Also, as you look at what Jesus did, he, he it's interesting, he spoke out loud to Satan. I, I don't know whether Satan was there. Sometimes, yeah, actually, Satan was there on that one. But when he talked to those demons, he spoke out loud. Demons can't read our minds. They, they don't know our thoughts. They can't. They're not omniscient. And so there's a piece of this. If you suspect, if you sense, if the Spirit's saying, hey, this could be, speak it out loud. In the name of Jesus Christ, get out. Leave. When you look at Jesus and his encounters with a lot of this, and when he encountered demons especially, it wasn't a long conversation. It wasn't polite either. We don't have to be nice to them. We can just simply say, in the name of Christ, knock it off and get out. And, and we don't have to ask Jesus for help. Like, Lord, would you help these demons go? He's already given us the help. You're a daughter of Christ. You're a son of Christ. You have been given all authority and power in Christ's name. And he's saying, use it. Use my name all the time. Great. Do it. Don't ask me for it. I've given you it. You've already been authorized. You're a card-carrying member of Christ's family. Flip it out. Say, get out. In the name of Christ, leave. And they have to go. 
It's a spiritual law. They have to leave. Finally, fourth thing. Don't, don't give Satan and demons any more press than you need to. And I love what Appleby is a guy that uh, we've uh, read and actually brought him up for a seminar. He said, it's only a demon. It's only a demon. They're defeated by Christ. We have power and victory over them by Christ. They submit to Christ. Therefore, they submit to us because Christ is in us. It's just the law, a spiritual law written in his word. They know it. We should know it. And if you have anxiety right now and fear right now, please understand that you, Paul says, you've been given the Holy Spirit, not a spirit of fear, but the spirit of God in you. There should be nothing we fear. In fact, the only one we're called to fear is the Lord. It's the only person we're ever called to fear. And it's a, it's a reverent fear. It's a, a fear in terms of holiness and right standing but not to fear Satan, fear the Lord. As a staff and elder board, um, several years ago, we spent a lot of time and energy on this topic. And, and there were several conclusions that we, we made. I mean, we had to get our, kind of our minds around this because all of a sudden it just kind of landed in our laps. And we had to figure out what, what then should we think about these things and how should we lead about these things because a lot of us hadn't gone down this path or encountered this. And so there's several things we concluded as an elder board. First, we are part of the Christian Missionary Alliance and we agree with our denomination and are in lockstep with our denomination's teaching and position on this. We believe that Christians cannot be possessed they are owned by Christ, but we do believe Christians can be demonized, and there's a range or scale of what that looks like. Second, we are a church that will hold the tension the Bible calls us to of our own personal sin and being accountable for it, demonization and the effects that that can have on us, and the curse of this world and the effect that that can have on us. And we are going to hold those things in tension and fight for balance on those things. Meaning, we will not go towards a direction where a demon is every, under every bush. We just won't go there. We'll follow God's call to hold these things in tension. And because... Sin is the primary avenue of demonization. We will prefer confession, brokenness, and surrender of someone and a process of that over a power encounter. Because we believe that if a person really goes for brokenness and confession and surrender, they will find and experience freedom without having a power encounter. Third thing, if a person is not willing to yield to Christ, we won't do any power encounter whatsoever. Christ clearly says, don't do this with someone who is not serious about cleaning house and maintaining the house because what can happen is, he says, they'll, they'll go 
You can get rid of them, but they'll come back and they'll bring seven times as many with them and the person will be overwhelmed. And tragically, we have seen that. We didn't understand that. And we won't do that again. The fourth thing, and this is what I like, is as a church, we will give always the focus on Christ. We will spend our time praising him and dealing with Satan and this battle in as much as scripture calls us to and no more. We want to focus on Christ. He's awesome. I want to read to you a passage, and I feel like that's where I want to settle here, is hearing the word talk about Christ. Response for this message, I don't know how to respond. I don't know how God would have you respond to this message. Um, Sean and I were talking, um, and he's like, I, I had some stories there, and he's like, yeah, don't share the stories. Um, he says, that'll spook people. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, you're probably right. Um, we don't have to be spooked by it, but the stories are real. And when I first came here, we didn't hear much, and I would say now I'm hearing it very frequently of people that are having a supernatural, it's not God experiences, but other things going on. It's on a regular basis, and well, of course, we're in a war. It's going to happen. We're owned by Christ, which means we're going to be fine. We're going to be fine. It's going to be okay. If anyone is in Christ, you're fine. He can get you free. It may cost something. It may cost confession and humbling yourself and breaking. That's a high price. In fact, I think that's probably the, the scarier thing, really, is not the demon, but whether we're really wanting to go there and be broken and be humbled. That's the higher call. But if you're in Christ and he owns you, you're fine. You're going to be okay. We can get through it. And if God's putting on your heart like, man, I don't know, what if, and what if, you can talk to me, you can talk to someone who, you know, you trust, and, and start that process. But I want to end this time focusing on Christ. I invite the team to come up. We're going to spend some time in worship. There was this moment when the disciples came back after they'd just been empowered by Christ to go and heal the sick and cast out demons, and they came back and they said, Jesus is awesome! The demons, they all left. It was so cool. And Jesus is like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You want to know what's really cool, though? Your names are written in the book of life. He says, you're saved. That's that's even better than any demon that would submit to you. You're saved. Rejoice in that. Colossians 15, verse 15 of chapter 1. 
Jesus, as I read this, would you increase right now? Would you show us yourself in a fresh way, in a new way right now as I read the word, the living word about you, the testimony of who you are? Bring us to your feet. Bring us into the throne room where we see you in all your glory, in all your majesty. He is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He's before all things, and in him all things hold together. He's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from among the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, you, who once were alienated, and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you and me holy and blameless, above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel you heard, which has been proclaimed in creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, am a minister.